Hello, welcome again if you're just joining us, whether in person or on live stream, glad you're here and with us tonight. Um, my name is Bridget, uh, I am a partner here at Lettered Streets Covenant Church and our pastor, our faithful pastor Chris Eltrich is on renewal leave right now and so he'll be back uh, September 17th. Um, and so we'll be excited to welcome him back then. On, in the interim, he has some people subbing for him and I am privileged to be one of those subbing uh, in giving sermons specifically. So we are continuing on the road in Esther and we are gonna be diving into Esther chapter five through eight today. It's a big chunk. So fasten your seatbelts, we're gonna be covering a lot. Uh, Let's pray as we dive in. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you've spoken to me this last week when preparing. Thank you for the ways in which you've prepared each of our hearts for whatever it is you have for us today. And God, I pray that anything that is of me or anything that is of us, Lord, that would get in the way of your work, God, I pray that you move it to the background. Any of that stuff, Lord, let it fall to the wayside, Lord, and let whatever it is of you, Lord, let it stick in our hearts. Let that be the thing that we walk away with today. I pray for grace and wisdom and understanding your word as we walk through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, one of the questions that I love to ask when studying any book or passage or story of scripture is what would be missing from the entirety of scripture if this passage or story or book were not included? What if Esther was not there? What if the book of Genesis was not there? And sometimes there's a very simple answer or a very clear answer. Like in the book of Genesis, we'd be miss missing the creation account, right? And the Abrahamic covenant. And then there's Psalms where we'd be missing these heartfelt prayers and petitions and praise songs of the first people of the faith, the covenant people of God. And we'd be missing these inner heart workings that we get to see a glimpse of through the Psalms. I think that this question helps really drill down into what this particular passage brings that is unique when set next to so many other rich passages. And it brings out the purpose of the passage. Without the book of Esther, I believe that we would be missing a defining moment in Israel's history. A story that is still told over and over in Jewish synagogues today because it so fundamentally impacted the people. They were on the brink of genocide and were then delivered. This defining moment leads the covenant people of God to praise him, to trust him more, to look ahead to a full deliverance from all of their earthly enemies. And it is, and yet, this is the only book of the Bible where God's name is not mentioned once. We all, I believe, have defining moments in our lives. Sometimes it's graduation, sometimes it's marriage, sometimes it's that single conversation we had with somebody, sometimes it's the death of a loved one. And we also have defining moments as communities. In 2020, I think that we had a strain of many defining moments as a community and as a world as we dealt with our, this pandemic. I think a defining moment for us as LSCC 
could be the story of how we ended up worshiping here in this building for this season. These events change us and we're fundamentally a different people. We are different because of what we've seen or experienced. And I'm sure we all have these stories that we can like look back on and think about how we're, how we're different and kind of time slows. Uh, years ago, I was working a four to midnight shift at Agape and there was a woman there at the time who was eight, nine months pregnant and she went into labor on my shift, and I was the only person there. So I called 911, and I knew very little about childbirth at the time. Um, never attended one, never had a kid at the point. Like, it was, so I called 911, and I'm sitting, um, or I'm kneeling next to this bunk bed where she is laboring, next to her two-year-old who's screaming. And I tell the operator, oh, this woman's in labor and yada, yada. And so she starts asking me questions and everything. And the operator starts telling me, I don't know what was going, around, going on around Bellingham at the moment, but she starts telling me the paramedics probably won't get there in time. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this isn't quite what I signed up for. It's definitely not what I was trained for. And so she starts telling me what to gather. She starts telling me to gather clean towels and warm water and clothespins and safety pins. I still don't know what safety pins were going to be used for, but she wanted me to gather them. And so I tell a woman in the shelter, can you please go gather these things? So she's running around trying to find this stuff. And, and the operator, you know, is still asking me questions. How old is she? All these things. And and I'm trying to time the contractions and it's feeling urgent, more and more urgent. And the woman, the operator says, well, how many kids has she had? And the only thing I knew about childbirth was the more kids you've had, the faster childbirth goes, Ten, or tends to be. Um, and I thought, oh, we're in good stead. She's only had one other kid. And so I tell the operator, oh, she's had one other child. You can probably hear her. She's right next to me right now. And she's, she's crying herself. And the operator goes, okay. The woman on the bed in the midst of a contraction goes, I've had seven. And I was like, oh, that is not, and I, there's a lot that went on in my brain at that moment. One was, as a case manager, how have I not heard about these other kids? What is going on? And then the other part of me was like, oh my. And the operator, I think she had the same reaction. Suddenly I hear all this rustling going on and her saying, I heard that, I heard that, I heard, and I was like, okay. And it, at that moment, this other woman from the shelter comes to the door frame of this bedroom because I'm still kneeling net next to this bunk bed. And she says, um, you know, this isn't how all births are. Yours will probably be much calmer one day. And she's trying to calm me down because I think she's afraid that I will never give birth after this experience. And I have to tell her, you know, this, let, let's pick this back up later at a later date. Um, I'm in the middle of something. And so I'm there and the, the operator is you know, telling me, I think you need to check to see if the head's coming out. I need you to check. And I'm like, this will forever change our relationship as case manager and client. And so I cover the end of the phone and I'm like, she wants me to check to see if the head is coming out. And the woman on the bed goes, it's not. And I'm like, okay. And so I get back on the phone. <laughs> And I was like, it's not coming out. I'm like, she's had seven kids. She probably knows at this point. And the, the woman goes, okay, good. And it was in this moment where I, like time had slowed and I had this distinct image come to my mind as we're, I'm kneeling next to this bunk bed with this toddler. And 
This image of Jesus being born in a stable and put in a manger. And just thinking about this, this moment, this fragile moment for the God of the universe coming down. And it was this image that I looked at and then I looked back at this woman on this bunk bed. And I thought, oh, the straits that this woman are in, the fragile state, God identified with her in the midst of this fragile, vulnerable state. In the midst of this woman on this bunk bed with the crying two-year-old and me, a shelter worker with no training, trying to attend to her at birth, and Jesus sees her. And I had this moment of God sees, God sees her, this truth of fresh washed over me that he sees her in this moment, in this fragile, vulnerable moment. He is there, he's in the midst of this. And not only does he see, but he, in many ways, he lived it. He lived it. He comes into our own mess, in his fragility, in a similar state, with this, without a stable place to give birth with misunderstandings about his mom and dad's relationship, with struggle ahead. And I was struck with the truth afresh, and this defining moment for me has been something that I continually come back to year after years as I wonder about how God sees and how he walks alongside the vulnerable and those in our community and those of us when we feel vulnerable. God identified with the vulnerable, with his people, through Jesus. That when all the cards are stacked against us, against his people, he does not forget them. And uh, I do want to say, in case you're on the edge of your seats, thankfully the paramedics did show up, and she did get to the hospital in time, thankfully. I did not have to deliver the child. Uh, the story of Esther, though, is like this defining moment. Against all odds, God brings deliverance. Time slows during our three chapters today. Time slows so much. Over the course of the first four chapters in the book of Esther, it actually spans 12 years. And these three chapters span two days. Two days. So if we look at the timeline, sometimes we can get, the timeline can get distorted as we read through it. It just seems like it all happened in an hour when we read it in an hour. But the first four chapters, 12 years. These three, two days. It's as if the movie camera has zoomed in real close and is showing us detail and nuance, drawing us even further in to capture our hearts and get us on the edge of our seats. In the scripture reading today, thank you, Jeff, for doing that. We heard about Esther successfully approaching King Xerxes without being killed. And her first feast that she put on for the king and Haman in chapter five. And then for a reason we do not know, she chose not to ask for what she wanted that day, but wait for day two when her second feast would happen. But in the interim, we have this sort of strange account of Haman building a gallows for Mordecai, which was 50 cubits high, which essentially each cubit is around 18 inches, so that's 75 feet high, which is over five stories. This is ridiculous, right? So it's over five stories high, this gallows. So this, 
it shows like increased tension in the plot, but it's also the ridiculous arrogance of Haman. It shows a bit of where his pride was and how high it was that he's building this huge gallows for Mordecai. And then the other strange thing that happens on this interim time frame is that the king does not sleep well. Kind of weird twist of the story. In chapter six, verse one, it reads, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. This is the equivalent of late night TV in these times. This is one of those moments in the retelling of the story that I wonder if the early Jewish people would say, oh yeah, it just so happened on that night the king couldn't sleep. And then it just so happened that the story that was read was the thwarting of the assassination plot by Mordecai, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We really know who made sure that the king could not sleep and that that was the story that was read. They were referring to God. And actually in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it explicitly says and interprets this verse to say, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. From an early time, it was recognized that God was behind this. God was behind the lack of sleep, this broken night of sleep for the king. And this is where the, the point in the story where things start to turn around which is fascinating because it's a very ordinary thing, right? The broken night of sleep. We all have these from time to time. And this point of turning doesn't include Esther. It doesn't include Haman. It doesn't include a human like causing it. The way that the book of Esther is written is in a chiastic structure. And I'll explain that here in a second. And it tells us that the, the storyteller is not only masterful in the storytelling, but that the author wanted us to specifically zero in on this spot, on this moment. Uh, if you wouldn't mind putting up the slide. Got one slide, it won't be up long. I know the writing is small, so I apologize if people can't read it. Um, a chiastic structure is basically a way of storytelling that repeats ideas or themes in reverse order. I'm feeling like maybe I should have checked with some of you literary majors um, prior to this in my definition. Oftentimes this serves to compare and contrast events or draw attention to the middle of the story. And that's the case in the book of Esther. Okay, so bear with me on this. This is kind of, it's, it's pretty cool. So in chapter one, we first have the banquet for all of Persia, for all of the empire that King Xerxes puts on. And then, we have the banquet that Xerxes puts on again in chapter one for all of Susa, which is the major citadel, it's like the capital city of the empire of the time. It's where Xerxes lived. And then in chapter two, we have Esther's coronation banquet. And then chapter five, Esther's first banquet for King Xerxes and Haman. Okay, so now we have the middle part of the story. The sleepless night. So the focal point here. And then things start to repeat, but in reverse order. So you'll see next we'll have Esther's second banquet for King Xerxes and Haman in chapter seven. And then we have Mordecai's promotion, promotion feast in chapter eight, which correlates to Esther's coronation banquet in chapter two. 
And then it kind of re reverses a little bit here, but bear with me, it's mostly the same overall. Then we have the day one of the Purim feast for all the empire in chapter nine, correlating to the first banquet for all the empire that, that King Xerxes puts on. And then we have day two of the Purim feast for all of Susa, the capital, correlating to King Xerxes putting on the banquet for Susa. Thank you, you can take the slide down now. Thank you. Um, but this focal point, I believe that the author was trying to make it extra clear that any good here in the story, any saving of the people was due to the Lord, not Esther or Haman. God is the one calling these shots. Way back three weeks ago, when we were first reading the book of Esther, we talked about how one of the themes in the book of Esther is God's providence. And the short version of God's providence is that God is for us. And that there's this inner work of this be kind of behind the scenes working in the book of Esther of God's fingerprints are all over this story, even if his name is never once mentioned in the entire book. We see him working out his purposes throughout the whole book of Esther. So here we are in the middle. When the king was read the chronicles about Mordecai thwarting the assassination plot, it would have been an extremely shameful thing for the king to realize that he had not honored Mordecai properly. This would have been humiliating for him. It's actually one of the ways that the king keeps the kingdom in line. He publicly honors loyalty and punishes disloyalty. And soon after he realizes that he has not done this properly, then we get a glimpse into Haman's thoughts. So the king basically asks Haman, hey, how, would we, how should I honor this person whom I delight to honor? Who, how should I do this? What should this look like? Whom the king delights to honor? How should I do that? And here we have in verse six, Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman, of course, doesn't know who Xerxes is intending to honor. And the irony of this passage is incredible. Sorry, this stand. Some people have mentioned that this is the most ironic chapter in all of scripture. And I don't know about that. But it is very ironic. So Haman has basically come in thinking he's the man that morning. He's the man. He just talked with all of his friends and family and they agreed with him. You're the man, like build this gallows 75 feet high, build it, come in, talk to the king in the morning and make sure that Mordecai is impaled upon it before you go to the, the banquet and then all will be good. And then you'll have joy and then you'll be able to rest. So Haman thinks he just needs to come in early for the day at this point and request that Mordecai be put to death. And then the king asks about, who, how should I honor this person who I delight to honor? And Haman's like, oh man, this day is just getting better. It's gonna go so well for me. And then, and then, he ends up being commanded by the king to honor Mordecai publicly, the opposite of the thing he woke up thinking he was going to do. And we see the beginning of the reversal here, the beginning of Haman's downfall, with Haman being charged by the king to hurry, do all that you have said, leave nothing out you have mentioned, but not for himself, for Mordecai. 
Mordecai, not Haman, is the one that the king delights to honor here. Dressing someone in royal robes is one of the greatest honors a king could bestow on someone. It is close to naming this person next powerful in the kingdom to the king. So Haman, instead of executing Mordecai, has to bring Mordecai around the city, dressed in royal robes on one of the king's horses, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. After this turn of events, Haman runs home, and he meets his wife, Zeresh, who predicts his downfall. Less than a day after she, along with their friends, encouraged him to build this ridiculously tall gallows. We see a compare and contrast thing going on with Haman and Esther. Esther, throughout the book, has sought life for her people, herself, her family, while Haman goes on seeking death. The honor and glory and riches weren't enough for him, but he had to have some everyone's praise including Mordecai's. So Esther sought life and Mordecai sought death. Esther approached the king humbly after seeking the Lord. Haman approached the king with pride after seeking advice from some close friends and family. Esther approached with humility, Haman with pride. Where they sought advice varied as well. Esther with the Lord, and not only did she seek out the Lord in this, but she also brought others along, including the gen, her Gentile servants, her, the people that attended her, she brought them along, encouraged them along with her to fast and seek the Lord. Haman, though, sought advice from close friends and family after celebrating his accomplishments. The absolute foolishness and ridiculousness of the things that Haman does and says take some of the teeth out of the evilness of this story. And we're encouraged to laugh at this folly because it's just so exaggerated, so ridiculous. And at the same time, we can each recognize the bit of Haman that we have in each of our own hearts. We also have pride. We also get addicted to things like praise and wanting everyone to like us and power. We also look out for ourselves first at times. And when these things are in a story with a person like Haman, we can laugh at the ridiculousness and consider the ugliness of his heart, knowing that we too need just as much grace and our behavior can look just as ugly and ridiculous. But, hang tight, there is good news for us, though there isn't really for Haman here. Um, so let's move on to chapter seven. And this is page 496 in the, not the Pew Bible, but the Bible that is in the back, the foyer Bible, if we want to call them that. Um, in the foyer Bible, if you would like one, they're back there. Uh, and we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king, oh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I was getting a little too excited there. Okay, so... Verse 1, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. This was after Haman had gone home. He's brought back to the feast. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? 
even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. The king Xerxes said to Queen Esther, who is he, where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined him by the king. And this, I'm just gonna pause here for a second, this would have been unheard of. No one is supposed to be within seven steps of any woman from the king's harem without the king there, or with the king even present let alone to be even in their presence when the king is absent. King or uh, Haman should have left the room immediately when Xerxes left, but he didn't. So now we have verse eight. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Um, another pause. This will be the last one, I promise. Most interpreters don't really think Haman was about to assault the queen. Uh, he could have been trying to kneel in petition of the queen to plead his case. Uh, he could have tripped, etc. Regardless, Xerxes' perception or chosen interpretation of the action is the assault, which conveniently actually gives the king a reason or a way, an easy way out, since what Esther accused Haman of doing is something the king himself okayed. So Xerxes is also trying to figure this out, like how do, how do I deal with something with allegedly, you know, Haman doing this when the king himself okayed this? Okay. So there we are. So now on verse nine, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Thank you for the reading of your word. Feel free to be seated. So we start this chapter with another feast. But this time, when King Xerxes asks Queen Esther what he can do for her, she answers beautifully. She has this eloquent, strategic speech where she pleads on behalf of the people of God. She chooses to not mention Haman's name initially, 
which I think creates suspense and, in, suspense and ensures that the king has a chance to consider his actions prior to hearing the connection with Haman. One of the many things that I love about this whole section of scripture is that it begins to consistently refer to Esther as Queen Esther, and it does for the rest of the book. It is when she decides to live out of both of her identities, one as part of the covenant people of God, a Jewish woman, and the second part, part of royalty, Queen Esther. Some may say she began to own it, to walk it out, and whatever we call it, it's at this point in the story that she shows amazing character development, leadership, and strength. And I think we can learn from this in our own politically divisive and morally ambiguous culture that we live in. What if we lived fully into who God is calling us to be? What if we held nothing back? I think Esther leaned into all God had for her here. And it was legit scary for her. I wonder for us what you and I may be holding back and we maybe are nervous about sharing that we're a believer or sharing how God has gifted you vocationally in some way and maybe we're hesitant to serve in that way. Esther is an incredible example, example of not separating the sacred and the secular in these chapters. And I wanna challenge all of us to consider if we are holding back, holding these things separate in some way and living out of our identities in separate ways or compartmentalizing them. I think it's one thing in these chapters for God to deliver the people from genocide but he does not leave it there in these chapters. God does a whole reversal. The people of God are not merely saved. They are now in positions of power with the empire, with Mordecai now promoted and given the signet ring in place of Haman. Haman is not merely stripped of his authority, but is executed, he's gone, and it's kind of a finale to the Amalekite conflict. In the next two chapters, we see it's not the king holding banquets before conquest, but the Jewish people celebrating their deliverance through their feasts. Everything bad is not only undone, but reversed. And I just think, isn't that the way of Jesus? The arc of biblical history hinged on the seemingly mundane moment where a baby was born. And then that baby grew up and turned the world upside down. Through Jesus' ministry, he brought God's kingdom and started to reverse the effects of the fall. On the cross and through his resurrection, he brought life where there was death. He brings those without family into the family of God. He gives hope where there was despair. He heals shame and gives new identity, forgiven, freed. He turns our mourning to gladness 
and our sorrow to joy. He brings beauty from ashes. And this is my prayer for us as a people of God, that we would pray these big prayers to the God of reversals, to the God who did not merely save the Israelites from genocide, though by golly, that would definitely be praiseworthy enough, but to the God who saw his covenant through and reversed the evil in Esther. God doesn't just take away the bad. He heals it and brings new life. He doesn't just take away the sadness, but he restores our joy. He doesn't just take away addiction. He gives rich relationship. He doesn't just get rid of trauma. He brings healing to the heart and rewires the brain. I was convicted this last week while studying this passage that I was forgetting how great and good and loving our God is. There are people close to me now and over the years that have experienced great loss and trauma and their day-to-day behaviors and relationships and lives are greatly impacted by it. And I heard this gentle whisper from God saying, you see what I did there in the book of Esther? Mordecai was just in sackcloth and ashes on the streets and now he's in royal robes and he's got the signet ring on. He's being led through the city with honor. You see Esther and the people being sentenced to genocide, to death by Haman, and now Haman's the one that's dead and I'm putting Mordecai in his place of power in the empire. You think this behavior, that trauma, or that loss, or that sadness, or that thing is too great for me? Trust me, hope big. Oh God, we come to you in our own In our own ways, some tired, weary, scared, feeling the weight of that place of needing deliverance, of needing your mercy, of your hope, God. We may feel the sentence of death and the press of powerful people and policies. Remind us, God, as you have in the book of Esther, that you are for us, that you can and you do heal. And God, I pray for specifically, Lord, for those of us that are in in that place in the book of Esther that are waiting for that. We're in that spot. We're, We're waiting to see your fingerprints in our story. And we're waiting to see where and how you are with us, Lord. I pray that you give us eyes to see God, in the midst of wherever we're at on that journey, Lord, remind us that you are the God of comfort. God, I pray that we would feel your presence. Oh Lord, thank you for hearing Esther and the other covenant people of God who sought you. Thank you for hearing them. Thank you for hearing us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.